currently this is the only copy of this book that I own, so no one shall abscond with it. But uh, you all have been so uh, kind to put up with uh, much discussion of justification for a couple of years. Uh, finally, the result is in, shall we say. And uh, I'll have hopefully some more of those uh, next week or maybe the week after, depending on shipping and so on and so forth. Not really certain there, but we'll we'll see. <clears throat> but it finally finally came out, and hardbacks look so much bigger than paperbacks. It's only about 20 pages longer than Potter's Freedom, but uh, it just looks a lot bigger when it's got it's got stuff on it. So so. The last two books were all on soteriology, right around 800 pages. Someone once told me I was very verbose, and I've now proved that to a to the extreme, uh, in essence. All right, uh, we have uh, been working on a series, uh, brief series on answering common objections uh, to the doctrines of grace, and uh, what I'd like to do uh, today is look at a couple of the. Uh, big verses, and uh, we looked at John 3.16 the last time that we did this, and uh, I'd like to look at Matthew 23.37 this morning uh, to start with. For those of you who uh, do not have uh, computer uh, access or do not listen to our, uh, we have a webcast we do on Saturdays, you can listen to it anytime you want actually, but uh, we have a webcast on uh, Saturdays that we do it live, and then we put the archive up and uh, for the past couple of weeks, I've uh, been working on a response. Uh, Dr. Geisler has responded to uh, my book, The Potter's Freedom, in the second edition of his book, Chosen But Free. There's a 11 or 12-page uh, appendix attached to the new edition of Chosen But Free. And uh, I've been going through that uh, appendix on our uh, webcast. It is uh, uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, I, I have... I was theorizing yesterday as to uh, uh, how in the world this got into print. Uh, my theory is that uh, uh, the book was given to an undergraduate student uh, who took notes, and then uh, those notes were turned into this appendix or something, because uh, a large portion of the page numbers aren't even right. Um, the, uh, when the citation is correct, uh, the term context is uh, uh, just completely ignored. At one point in my book, I had... Uh, I had made, uh, just to give you an example, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but uh, the, it's, it's a fairly ad hominem filled response. Uh, I'm just basically a, a young, ignorant, extreme Calvinist, but uh, uh, allegedly I engaged in a tremendous amount of name calling and ad hominem. And under ad hominem, uh, he said, um, uh, my, uh, whenever my exegesis disagrees with the potter's freedom, my exegesis is dismissed as in the, the list of phrases. And one of the phrases came from 20, page 29, my exegesis is dismissed as a mere presentation. And so I've been going through reading all of them. And uh, here's page 29, and this is where the phrase comes from. Remember, this is, this is where I'm in, allegedly engaging in ad hominem, which is argument against the man. It's uh, not providing meaningful uh, argumentation, but it's uh, just attacking the person. You know, if I were to have an argument with, uh, with one of you and, and instead of responding to your point, I would say, yeah, well, your shoes are ugly. Uh, that's an ad hominem argument. It actually doesn't mean anything, but I'm just arguing against you as an individual. And so that's uh, the accusation that's being made against me. And, and the, the alleged phrase, as I mentioned, is uh, 
that I dismiss his position as a as mere presentation. Well, here's the context that came from. There is great confidence in trusting in God's sovereignty, especially when it comes to the fact that even Christians are willing to place their own supposed freedom, freedom and autonomy over the true freedom and autonomy of God. I have seen many precious souls struggle through these foundational issues and emerge changed, strengthened with a new and lasting appreciation of the holiness and love of God, along with a passion for his grace that cannot be erased. While I am grieved at the confusion that books like CBF cause, CBF is chosen but free, I am confident that the word is so clear, so plain, and so compelling that the mere presentation of its truths is sufficient for the child of God. And it is to that that we now turn. There's the phrase. I'll read it again. I am confident that the word is so clear, so plain, and so compelling that the mere presentation of its truths is sufficient for the child of God. That's ad hominem argumentation against Norman Dudley. I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, but that's, uh, uh, it has been absolutely incredible uh, to, to read this response. Uh, it's just unbelievable, truly unbelievable. But anyways, that really doesn't have anything to do with this, other than the fact that I did include a chapter in uh, the Potter's Freedom, Chapter 6, where I dealt with the three verses that Dr. Geiser cited over and over and over and over again. Uh, in fact, I, I gave... Um, Matthew 23, 37, 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 2 Peter 3, 9, one of these verses appears an average every three to four pages in Chosen but Free. And it's cited, these are cited over and over again as being absolutely positively detrimental and contradictory uh, to the Reformed position. Interestingly enough, there is not the first attempt in this 12-page appendix to even begin to interact with the exegesis that I offered in this chapter. It's like this chapter doesn't even exist. So uh, if any of you have read this, and you've read Chosen But Free, you'll want to read this appendix just simply to go, you've got to be kidding. It's, it's, it's absolutely reprehensible. Anyways, Matthew 23:37. if you're looking at it, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. This verse is cited 11 times in uh, Dr. Geisler's book, uh, Chosen But Free. And, of course, uh, this verse is cited as evidence that God wanted to do something. God wanted to gather the Jews, but they were unwilling. So their unwillingness undoes uh, God's willingness. God wants to do something. Man frustrates him. Therefore, such concepts as irresistible grace, the grace of God causing regeneration, etc., etc., cannot possibly be true because Jesus con uh, taught contrary to this in Matthew 23:37. In fact, uh, using uh, Dr. Geisler as an example, he says, also Matthew 23:37 affirms emphatically that Jesus desired to bring the Jews who rejected him into the fold, but could not because they would not. Now, let me repeat that again so you can hear exactly what's being said. Also, Matthew 23:37 affirms emphatically that Jesus desired to bring the Jews who rejected him into the fold, but could not because they would not. He cried, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing, is put into italics in uh, Dr. Geiser's rendition. Then he says, God's grace is not irresistible on those who are unwilling. 
From his perspective, grace is only irresistible on those who are willing. So the will of man determines whether God's grace is going to succeed or not. Dr. Geisler is an unabashed synergist, uh, that God's grace and man's will must work together cooperatively uh, to bring about uh, salvation. So with that in mind, how would you respond uh, to Ma- the citation of Matthew 23, 37? Uh, in light of the assertions that normally, generally this verse is going to be cited in such a way that the assertion being made is that Jesus wanted to save the Jews to whom or about whom he was speaking, uh, that though this was Christ's desire, he could not fulfill his desire. Christ, as God, could not fulfill his desire without the cooperation of those to whom he was speaking. And uh, Christ could not bring these Jews into the fold because they would not. Therefore, while God's uh, desire is the salvation of every single individual, the reason that not every single individual is saved is because of man's will, man's capacity to uh, undo God's will. As Dr. Geiser says elsewhere, uh, God will save the maximum number of people possible. Possible in the sense of within the realm of protecting man's free will. So God will not do anything to dehumanize man, which is what he uh, understands irresistible grace to involve, is the dehumanization of man, cosmic rape. turns God into a cosmic rapist, is how he puts it. So how would you respond uh, to the citation of Matthew chapter 23, verse uh, 37? Well, there are a couple of things that we need to look at as we look at the text itself. First of all, I think it would be good, obviously, as it always is, to go back and to place this within a context. Almost all the time when we have an issue with the verse, it's because it is being cited outside of its context and with concepts attached to it that were not a part of the original context. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 23, you, uh, thinking of the Gospel of Matthew, realize that this is toward the end of Jesus' ministry. This is right before Uh, the uh, Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24. And Matthew chapter 23 is probably uh, one of the strongest language chapters in all the Bible. Uh, Outside of maybe the book of Galatians, there's probably not much more uh, in uh, the New Testament anyways that contains stronger language. Uh, Matthew chapter 23 gives to us the denunciation of the Jewish leaders, the denunciations of the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. And the phrase, you hypocrites, you whitewashed walls, you tombs with filled with dead men's bones, uh, comes to our mind as we read through Matthew chapter 23. These are, this is not exactly the milk toast Jesus view uh, that many people would like us to have. You know, Jesus was just always so very uh, nice and kind and, uh, you know, never said anything strong and was very politically correct. Well, Matthew chapter 23 is not politically correct in any way, shape, or form. And so it's in this context of the denunciation of the Jewish leaders that we have Matthew chapter 23. It is not a passage. Matthew chapter 23 is not a passage on the will of man, the will of God, issues of sovereignty, and salvation. That's the first thing to notice is that in almost every situation where Arminians raise passages that they believe are absolutely destructive of God's sovereign grace, For some strange reason, uh, they do so outside the context of clear soteriological uh, teaching. That is, teaching that is specifically on the doctrine of salvation. 
they're not going to derive this from John chapter 6. They're not going to derive this from Romans chapters 8 and 9 or Ephesians chapter 1, where the subject is specifically soteriology. They're going to pull these short, brief passages from other contexts and apply them in such a way uh, as to substantiate their point. That's what we have here as well. Let's look at the immediate context, beginning at uh, verse uh, 31. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Well, those who murdered the prophets are what? They're the enemies of God. He is addressing here enemies of God, the Jewish leaders who are enemies of God. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Just let that one sink in for just a moment. Uh... Jesus has just identified these people as you snakes in the grass, you brood of poisonous snakes and vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I sent you prophets, wise men and scribes. Now notice, he is differentiating between these people and the holy men of ancient Israel who were prophets and wise men and scribes. They were sent from God. These people were not. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. You're going to be the ones who are going to persecute my followers, just as your fathers killed the prophets, just as your fathers were guilty of shedding the blood of, uh, of, uh, from Abel to Zechariah. Guess what? You are going to continue this even in the future after my death and resurrection. You're going to persecute my followers that on you may come all the righteous blood on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, which I find fascinating because that took place 400 years earlier, but who killed uh, uh, Zechariah, but the Jewish leadership. And he's holding them accountable. And it's interesting, by the way, just in passing, that verse 35 is uh, an indication of the canon of the Old Testament Scripture. If you're familiar with the discussion of this, you know that the, the story of Abel is found in the book of Genesis. The story of the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, is found in Second Chronicles, which was the last of the Old Testament books in the Hebrew order of the canon. Uh, if you look at a Hebrew Old Testament, you'll see Second Chronicles as the last book. So it would be like saying, from Genesis to Revelation, for us, uh, is the same thing that's being said here. Verse 36, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here is the context. It is a context of strong denunciation. And in fact, it is in the concluding sections of this strong denunciation of whom? Of the Jewish leaders, even laying against them the guilt of the blood of the prophets themselves, that this passage occurs. But the passage is cited so often, so frequently, that as I've mentioned to you in the past, many people take their interpretation of the passage and that interpretation becomes so overriding that many people will miscite the passage. 
I mentioned to you that, uh, and I know we have visitors who come in and out, so if you've heard this before, then uh, you know, stick with me for just a moment. But uh, last summer, uh, actually last May, Dave Hunt put out a newsletter article where he attacked Calvinism. Well, he attacked a gross straw man version of Calvinism, which is standard. Uh, but he quoted this passage. But he misquoted this passage. He misquoted this passage. He had, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you, how often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So I wanted to gather you, but you were not willing. That is the very application that Dr. Geisler makes. Uh, Christ wanted to gather these Jews, but they were not willing. And then uh, last, uh, uh, this last April, uh, when I was, I'm sorry, in uh, was it October? No, it was last April, when uh, this very last April, it was two Mays ago, by the way. It wasn't this last May, it was May before that. Then in uh, this last April, I was in Salt Lake City debating a uh, Mormon on the subject of uh, free will and divine sovereignty. And when he quoted Matthew 23:37, he did the exact same thing. How often would I have gathered you, but you were not willing? But you may notice something. That's not what the text says. In fact, the text, as we look at it, does what? It differentiates between those whom Jesus is addressing and those that he wanted to gather. That one consideration, which is right there on the text in, in the text right in front of us, is more than sufficient to overthrow the use of this term the way that Arminians use it, but no one ever seems to notice it. Jesus does not say, how often, you Jewish leaders, I wanted to gather you together, but you were unwilling, so my desires have been frustrated by your, your powerful creaturely will. That's not what it says. Speaking to the Jewish leaders and doing what? Holding them accountable for enslaving those who follow them. Remember, there is an earlier passage that specifically, uh, uh, verse 13 of chapter 23. Turn back there. Notice what one of the earlier condemnations here in chapter 23 was. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. One of the reasons for the condemnation against the Jewish leaders was that by their traditions and their teachings and their behavior and their hypocrisy, they were guilty of holding people back. Remember what uh, the prophets kept saying. By reason of you, Israel, Jehovah's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles. Because you possess the law, and you think by the mere possession of it that somehow makes you right, and yet you go around breaking it, your hypocrisy results in the blaspheming of the name of God. One of the charges brought against Israel for its unrighteous behavior. And this has already come up in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus has already condemned them 
for they, they claim to be the very gatekeepers into the kingdom of heaven. And yet, in point of fact, not only do they not go in, but they're keeping other people out as well by binding upon them these burdens and all these things that have nothing to do with what it means to truly follow God. And so that's what's going on in verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, not just this generation, but all all of the Jewish leaders who through the years had been unrighteous, who had loved their position and their power and their authority more than they loved God, who would not do justice, who would not uh, express mercy, but who just were interested in the religiosity of religious power. Jerusalem, you killed and stoned the prophets. You who, when I would send people to you that called for your repentance, you would kill them because you did not even want to hear the condemnation of your own sin. How often would I have gathered who? Your children. Not you. Those who Jesus found himself ministering to all the time. Those who, who lived under the oppressive re- religious regime of the scribes and Pharisees. We know from the writings of the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees of the day, especially the Pharisees, that they did not believe that the, the Am Ha'adits, the people of the land, who did not follow every single little prescribed washing and ritual, God's grace is not for them. God's grace is not for the Am Ha'aretz, the people of the land, certainly not for the, for the Gentiles, not for the Samaritans, and it's not even for you if you're a child of Abraham, and yet you don't follow our particular rules. These are the ones who, who still, if, if they wanted to bring sacrifice, if they wanted to go to the temple, these are the people who were in charge. It was the Sadducees that controlled the priesthood, and, and uh, the scribes were the ones who were, who were leading the synagogue worship, and these were, this was just the corrupt leadership of the day. You, there wasn't anything you could do about it. If you wanted to go to the temple, these were the people you had to deal with. They were in charge. And Jesus is saying in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven, one of the reasons of condemnation against you, Jerusalem, is you've not only killed the ones I sent to you, but you have stood in the way of your very children, the ones who you should, if you are shepherds of God's flock. Remember Jeremiah, the condemnations brought down upon the Jewish leaders because they were not good and righteous shepherds. They were basically fleecing the flock. You have an even greater condemnation because you have stood in the way of other people. You have deceived You have bound burdens upon them. And what does the next verse say? Your house is left to you desolate. And so a a sentence of condemnation upon them, talking about how they have behaved and how they have absolutely rejected God's will, that is then turned into an assertion that the creature and his will is more powerful than the salvific intention of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When the passage has nothing to do with it at all. Matthew 23, 37 has nothing to do with the subject we're supposed to be talking about. But the reason we have to address it is because of the constant and repetitious citation of it. And some people have heard it cited so often, so many times, that if you even stop to say, hey, let's, let's look at the context of that. Let's go back and read some verses. Most folks don't even know what the context is. 
It's just, well, that's what the passage says. Yes, sir. No. Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, often would I have gathered your children, but you were unwilling. The object of the address does not change. They were unwilling that their children be gathered. They think about it. What do false? What's what does a false? What's the last thing that a false religious leader wants to lose? His followers. His followers. That's that's his power base. What's the last thing that a corrupt politician wants to lose? His voters. And he'll do anything he can to keep his voters, to keep his voting base. And the religious leader, in this case, the Jewish leaders, which has been the subject all along in Acts 23:37, they themselves have stood in the way of Christ's ministry. But what does John tell us? That halfway through Jesus' ministry, what was decided about anyone who would follow Jesus? Out of the synagogue. You're put out of the synagogue. And if you're put out of the synagogue, then you're put out from your family, you're put out from your, your entire social situation, etc., etc. What are they doing even in, 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 in Matthew's gospel? They're following him around. And you, you can just know that they're, they're at all these meetings, and they're seeing what people are listening. And then after the meetings, they're going up to folks. Well, you know, the uh, Jewish leadership in Jerusalem hasn't exactly approved of uh, Jesus of Nazareth. You just... You just, I mean, these guys are plotting his death. You know that things like that are going on just as, just as well. So the, uh, the ones, the children, are the ones who uh, uh, are their followers. And the ones who are unwilling are not. It wasn't the huge crowds that followed Jesus. It was their leaders who were unwilling that Jesus' ministry be pursued amongst them. I think I've seen a either. Yes, sir. Well, yeah, it would have a variety of meanings, but in this context, I think its meaning is very clear because we have, if you read through all of Matthew chapter 23, there is this, and one thing I noticed while I was reading it, there is an, the ease of switching between talking about what the preceding generations had done in the Old Testament, all the way back to Abel, in fact. I mean, he connects this with, with uh, Cain. And the murder of the prophets from beginning to end and then it switches to, and you will continue to do this. So there's this, there's this spectrum of, of we're here, this is the future, this is the past, but you are consistent all the way through, just as Stephen in Acts chapter 7. You stiff-necked, hard, rebellious people. You're just like your fathers. And there's, nothing's changed. And so Jerusalem then becomes the picture uh, of, of this established, uh, religious uh, center of authority that simply refuses. Uh, and, of course, the lament of the prophets is heard in this as well. How many times does God's judgment become pronounced upon Jerusalem as a picture of the entirety of, of the people who will, who will receive punishment when the Babylonians come and, and take Jerusalem in, into captivity? Yes, sir.
Prophets? You mean Pharisees? No, he's saying that I sent to Jerusalem prophets, and you killed them. So Jerusalem is not the prophets. So this is the Jewish leaders are unwilling that Jesus' ministry be pursued amongst them. No. No, I don't believe that you will find uh, at the time of the writing of the New Testament that the Jewish leaders, view, I'm, I'm sorry, the Jewish people, or even the Jewish leaders, viewed themselves as prophets. In point of fact, um, the, uh, the Mishnaic uh, literature uh, tells us that at this point in time, the Jews recognized that the voice of God had not spoken in Israel since Malachi. What I'm saying is that the text makes a very clear and inarguable distinction between Jerusalem, which kills the prophets, and the ones that Jesus is talking about gathering as a hen gathers the chicks under her wings. It is not the Jewish leaders to whom that is addressed. There is a distinction between the two, and we have to deal with what that distinction is. This is not a, a discussion of salvation. It is a discussion of why it is that the Jewish leaders are going to be condemned and their house is going to be left to them desolate, which is what the next verse refers to. And the reason that their house is going to be left to them desolate is that they have stood uh, in the very presence of the Messiah, and they have done everything in their power to keep the, the Jewish people from attending to his ministry and to hearing his words. They've done everything they can to discourage people from listening to him, and in point of fact, they will then be the ones who are behind his arrest his betrayal, and his crucifixion. Uh, so the, the whole issue really is what is the actual, we always have to ask the question exegesis, what is the main point of the passage? And once the main point has been established, are there secondary applications that can be made? The main point is Jerusalem's house is going to be left to her desolate. Jerusalem here being identified as the ones who killed the prophets. So this is not... This is not Isaiah. This is not Jeremiah. These are not the prophets. These are the ones who killed the prophets, the Jewish leaders, the ones who are protecting their own turf, shall we say. Their house is going to be left desolate to them, and one of the reasons that's brought against them, many reasons in all the passage, but verse 37 says, you were not willing that the very God of Israel would be involved in ministry to the people of Israel. You stood in the way. I think that's very, very much the same thing as you have in the, uh, Matthew chapter 12, the unpardonable sin. Uh, there the Jews see the Holy Spirit working through Christ, and what do they say? Beelzebub. It's the power of Beelzebub. That's not the Holy Spirit. They are so warped. They are so twisted. 
They are so ready to call white black and black white that they can see the Holy Spirit of God ministering and delivering people, and they go, oh, power of the devil, power of the devil. Why? Because it, is, it undermines their own religious authority. Uh, but whatever we do with the passage, we have to recognize it differentiates between the ones that Christ spoke of gathering and the ones who were unwilling. The ones who are unwilling are the Jewish leaders. They are not the ones that Christ is trying to gather. It is their unwillingness to acquiesce to the work of Christ that is at issue here. Now the question then might be, well, someone would say, well, does that mean that someone else Someone else's will can override God's salvific will. I don't, that's A, that's not the issue, and B, no. Because God did save a remnant even in that day. Uh, so all the work of the, the Pharisees was going to come to naught, uh, as we see once the Holy Spirit is poured out. But that's not the issue here. That's simply not the issue here. We have to allow the text to speak for itself. And that's why as well, in the brief few moments here, uh, that we have, let's uh, take a look at the next passage, Second Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> and what we'll do, since we only have a few moments, is I'd like to read the third chapter and then ask you to think about it over the course of the week and uh, be ready with some uh, input uh, next week when we uh, look at this. 2 Peter chapter 3, let's, uh, let's just read the verse that's always thrown out first and then go back and read it in its context. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And as normal, the passage excuse me, is cited without a context. And in fact, Normally, only the last uh, portion of the verse is cited. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, immediately, when you see a phrase like that, the first thing that should cross our minds is, all right, is there a context that defines for us who the any and all are? And that is why I'd like to read Second Peter chapter 3, to uh, get that very context. I would just happen to notice in passing uh, that 2 Peter 1.1 begins with an address to the elect. It speaks of those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, or like precious faith in 2 Peter 1.1. But 2 Peter chapter 3, Beloved, beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Well, who are these people? Who is beloved and has pure minds? Is that every single individual on the planet? Or are we talking to Christians here? That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continued as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget. Now, I just stop for a moment. We've switched to a different referent here. He's not saying, beloved, you have forgotten this. He's now talking third person. For this they willfully forget. 
that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of, day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is, a, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So what is being discussed here? The writer is speaking to Christians, and he's talking about the fact that there will be scoffers. And what are they going to be scoffing about? They're going to be scoffing about the promise of the coming of the Lord. There's going to come a time when after the first generation of Christians has passed away, there is going to be scoffing. Well, where is the promise of his coming? And these scoffers forget that God's the creator and that God had once brought judgment uh, upon this earth in the form of the flood. And these individuals don't understand that our time frame and God's time frame are not the same. So what's being, who's it being addressed? Christians are being addressed. They're being, what's being explained? Well, why has there been this delay in the parousia? Why there's, you know, Christ has not returned yet. People are scoffing. Why? Well, with God, uh, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So with that in mind, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Now, if we stop right there, lay aside all our preconceptions. So far, very clearly, we've had believers, and we've had they, scoffers. And so now when it says, but is long-suffering toward us, logically and contextually, how are we to conclude what us is referring to? There has been direct address to the elect, to believers, and then third-person reference to those who are not. And so when it says, but is long-suffering toward us, here's a question. Upon what basis would anyone say, well, we know the immediate context is a distinction between beloved, those who have a pure mind, and the scoffers, but at this point we're going to change the context. And the us becomes every single human being on the planet. No more discussion of the difference between those who are scoffers and those who have a pure mind, the beloved. Forget about that. We're going to come up with a new context. The us is no longer the elect. The us is now all human beings. You see, that is the positive assertion being made by the Arminian. But I personally have never in my life heard an Arminian who cited the passage who gave me one reason for believing that. Or even realized they were making the positive assertion that that's what was going on. It was just assumed. Well, assumptions have to be challenged. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any, any of what? Has to be us, should perish, but that all, all of what? Us, should come to repentance. So why is the parousia delayed? Why is the coming of Christ delayed? And why has it been delayed now, quote-unquote, for almost 2,000 years? Because God is long-suffering toward his people, and he is gathering his people together. Aren't you glad the Lord didn't come 50 years ago? You wouldn't be around. Well, I suppose I should expand that out, but not 
I'm not going to point at anybody in particular, but, uh, you know, I suppose it is possible that uh, maybe I just uh, had an error there. And uh, But... Uh, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Who is you? It's back to the same. The, the, the audience does not change. Is Peter going to say this to the mockers? You mockers, <laughs> your, your conduct ought to be in holiness. Huh? Of course not. Of course not. I'm sorry. Why not? But that's not the that's not the context. He's talking here to believers and saying, recognizing that all these things are going to be disappearing. Therefore, what should not your behavior be? We're not talking about some general principle that well, uh, everyone should behave in a certain way. He's saying, you believers, recognizing the temporality of this world, your behavior should be in this fashion, that is, recognizing, as this goes on to say, looking for and hasting the coming of the day of God. That's not, is, is, is that something that you would expect of an unbeliever? That they're going to be looking for that? In fact, that's what marks believers from unbelievers. We're looking for that one hope, the appearance of our God, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Titus chapter 2. Certainly. I don't know how else to do exegesis outside of identifying the original audience. I mean, true, but you have to identify. If, if a differentiation in audience is in the text, that has to be taken into consideration. Yes, but again, um, from my perspective, uh, exegesis is the first foundation. And I know that people have dealt with this passage in other ways. If they can explain to me, if someone can explain why, in light of the clear differentiation of audience, uh, that that should not take, have any uh, impact upon our interpretation, uh, then I'm, I'm open to hearing that. Uh, but the simple fact of the matter is, uh, God's long-suffering toward us, toward his people. Um, I don't know, unless we're going to say, well, yes, he's, but he's long-suffering toward the non-elect too. Is it in the same way? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that it is. But I don't think that we need to do that in passages that do not force us to do so. I think we can take that very clearly from the apostolic preaching. The apostles, Wednesday night, we went through Acts chapter 13. The apostles clearly preached the gospel. They say we are light to the Gentiles. The, God, the Gentiles rejoiced upon hearing that. What's the result? All who are appointed to eternal life believe. If we take a, the apostolic example of preaching, this isn't an issue. And it's interesting to me that when people, you know, I, I know what the objections are. And I happen to enjoy being a living contradiction to the objection. 
because we're the only ministry that's in Salt Lake City every six months witnessing the Mormons. The Arminians don't bother. Uh, but I also am very careful. Uh, I really try to put extra emphasis in not um, allowing the objections that are raised against us that are not valid objections to influence exegesis. That's, I think, something that, that, uh, that we really need to be very careful of in that particular situation. I wasn't going to go all the way through 2 Peter 3.9, but once you get going, you know, it's sort of hard to stop. So, so the homework assignment won't be that. It'll be 1 Timothy 2.4. Uh, so write, write that one down. We, won't even have, we don't have time to read that one, but write that one down, and we'll look at uh, 1 Timothy 2.4. Yes, sir? Real quickly, because we're out of time. The those in We'll get that one later. That's, that's not a at the end of the uh, end of class uh, in 10 seconds uh, response. Believe you me. Uh, so we'll we'll get to that one later. Let's close the word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity of thinking about your truth. We do ask that uh, you would help us to uh, be bold in our sharing of your truth with all those around us. That we would uh, truly uh, be those who speak of our faith in Christ, and that you would be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.